live with inside of us. God, we pray now that you would give us preaching power. Anoint your preacher. Anoint our ears. Anoint our hearts, our minds, that we will be receptive to what the spirit of the true and living God has to say. Oh God, help us to receive it. Be better for it. And share it with others. In the marvelous name of Jesus Christ. Let the church say amen. Amen, amen. I want to turn your attention again to 1 Kings chapter 21. We find these words, verses 8, verse 8 through verse 10, recorded in the New King James Version. And, and she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She wrote in the letters saying, proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honors among the people and seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him saying, you have blasphemed God and the king, then take him out and stone him that he may die. Today I want to preach the second sermon in a series of sermons entitled, Not for Sale. Would you say that with me? Not for Sale. Last week we told you about a wicked king of Israel named Ahab. He was the son of Omri who, according to 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 30, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Ahab defied the teachings of his Hebrew faith by marrying Jezebel, a woman who did not believe in the God of Israel. In fact, she worshipped a God called Baal that had been created in the minds of the people, made with hands of people, and controlled by the whimsical impulses and desires of people. Now let me hasten here to clear up something. Let me hasten to clear up the fact that God's issue with Ahab marrying Jezebel was not that she was of another race. Ahab was Hebrew. She was of another race. That was not God's issue. God's issue was not that she was of another race. But the issue that God had with Ahab, marrying Jezebel, was that she was of another faith. Are you with me? Uh, the same point is clear in 2 Corinthians 7, 14 and 15, where Paul writes, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Bilal? Bilal translates an Old Testament word that means worthless person. 
Belial is a name Paul uses for Satan, the most worthless and lawless of them all. Verse 15 continues, of what part has believers with unbelievers? Listen, the word, when, you, when you read the chronicles of Ahab's life and his kingship, the worst mistake he made in his life was marrying Jezebel. I mean, you just read it for yourself. The worst mistake he made was marrying Jezebel and making her queen of his life as well as the queen of Israel. 1 Kings 21-25 makes clear the devastating influence Jezebel had over Ahab as she lured him away from the word of God, the will of God, and the ways of God. The verse states, but there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of God. Get this now in the verse. Because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. Ain't that what the Bible says? She stirred him up. Now, here's a footnote for you. If you are involved with somebody, if you are thinking about marrying somebody, if you are planning to yoke up with somebody who is not a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, whose lifestyle is not bearing fruit of, one, of the Spirit of God. I'm not talking about folk who come to, just come to church with you and has learned a little religious terminology. I'm talking about folk whose lives are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. You know the Spirit of God is living in them. You, you, you see the love, the joy, the peace, the, pace, uh, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, the self-control. Listen, you may have set the date, gotten the marriage license, paid your money for the reception, but don't do it. I know I'm right about it. Can I get a witness? You will be much better off waiting until God sends you the right person, one who has trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, than to make a bad decision that's going to blow up in your face. Later. Now, back during my early days as an Air Force chaplain, every once in a while I confess. Confession is good for the soul. I had been in school seven years, undergraduate seven, seminary three, and, and now I'm, I'm a brand new Air Force chaplain. I'm a captain. I'm at one of the most beautiful bases in the United States at Homestead Air Force Base, Florida. I'm enjoying myself. And I'm deciding that I need to get another car to better suit my image. I mean, I'm driving through the gate and, and folks are 
saluting and I'm walking all over the place and folks are saying, how you doing, you know, Chaplain Pickett, Captain Pickett. So I need another car to kind of suit my image. So I went out and looked at a pre-owned, that's another word, terminology for used, pre-owned, cert- it ain't nothing but used. That's what it is. I went out and, and, and looked to buy a pre-owned Mercedes Benz. This car was two-tone brown with plush brown interior. I imagine looking like a king as I rode as I rode in this Mercedes. The car was beautiful, bumper to bumper. As I was close to finalizing the deal, I thought it would be wise if I would call a trusted mechanic just to get his advice. And so after hearing me out, after hearing how beautiful the car is and and, and, and telling him my voice that I I really wanted the car, I told him to make the model and and how nice it was and and, and I, I really wanted it, he asked me one question. He asked me, have you bought it yet? I said, no. He said, don't. (laughs) It's getting ready to blow. I did not know that, that the engine in that car was messed up. But he did. According to the mechanic, there were some engine problems with that particular make and model, which I didn't know about. All I knew was that the car looked good. And, and it rolled, you know, it rolled good, and, and I wanted it. I had no clue that the engine in that car was in trouble. After all, it rolled smooth at the time. But it was a ticking time bomb looking for some place to explode. My point is this. Marriage is about more than a pretty face and a fine body. I wish I had somebody. It's more than just that sugar daddy swag. It's more than short skirts and low-cut tops. It's more than, 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 than sipping your favorite drink. It's more than that. It's more than just feeding each other fruit on a, on a secluded island someplace. Marriage is about more than that. It's even about more than a six-figure salary. Don't don't mess yourself up thinking that that's what marriage is about. It's more, more than that. It's more about the ownership of stuff. It's about seeking God's guidance and approval for a husband or a wife who has a deep abiding love relationship with Jesus Christ. I know I'm right about it. It's about connecting with a person 
of, get this now, of the opposite sex who has trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord of their lives and that trust, that trust is reflected in their morals, their values, and their ethics. In other words, you got to see it in action. When I got the good hope, first got the good hope, I used to hear, hear some of the deacons say, they don't say it that much now. I hear the people say that you can make that mouth say, help me somebody. You, you can, people can make that mouth say anything. And, and when they get that head anointed with oil, help me somebody. I ain't talking, I'm not talking about olive oil. When they get that head anointed with oil, they are subject to promise you the word. Oh, I know I'm right about it. Help me, Holy Ghost. Now, verses 1 through 4 of the text tell us Ahab made Naboth an offer on his vineyard, which was located adjacent to the king's palace. Naboth, in compliance with the will of God, refused to sell his land because doing so meant that he would be selling out his family, his future, and his faith. Naboth tells the king in no uncertain terms that my land is not for sale. It's not for sale. Ahab becomes depressed. You remember the story. Just a little reiteration. Ahab becomes depressed. He hurries home. He goes up to his room. He climbs into his bed and he begins to cry. Refusing to eat. In verses 5 through 7, Jezebel steps in and says, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? And Ahab replied, Because I offered to buy Naboth's vineyard or give him another vineyard for it. And his answer to me was, I will not give you my vineyard. In other words, it's not for sale. Verse 7 begins with Jezebel giving her husband a tongue lashing. She said, you exercise authority over Israel, exclamation point. Translation, you are the king. You are the sovereign ruler over the land. You are the ultimate source of power, dominance, and control. So what is your problem? Verse 7 continues, arise and eat food and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now let me share with you the 21st century of, of Jezebel's verbal tongue lashing. Verse 7, Jezebel said, is this any way for the king of Israel to act? Aren't you the boss? You know how folk push you up sometimes. Aren't you the boss? Aren't you in charge? Get your sorry self up. Eat some food. Don't worry. Be happy. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth since you are not man enough. Since you're not man enough to take it for yourself. I'll get it. Now, let me insert a footnote here for the men. 
God has called us to be the head of our households. Now you hearing that from a five foot eight, 153 pound preacher. God has called you and me to be the heads of our household. Paul clearly spells that out in Ephesians 5.23. For the husband is the head, help me Holy Ghost, of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. Now you can read it in Greek, Hebrew, Amen, Swahili, Zulu, whatever you want to read. But it is what it is. It says what it says. Oh, yeah. Now, 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 let me hasten to say, let me hasten to say, I know this is a tough pill for some folk to swallow. After all, we are living in a postmodern era where some people view the teachings of the Bible as old-fashioned and outdated. Some say the teachings of the Bible are out of touch with reality, and some have even written their own versions. Now, I know the truth. This truth is a tough pill to swallow. Especially in a world where the role of some men have changed in the family to the point where men now date men, hold hands with men, and kiss men in public, and people think it's cute and applaud that behavior. I know I'm right about it. Yet such behavior does not change the word of God. I don't care who applauds it. I don't care who says it's right. It can be the president. It can be the gut. It can be the preacher. You better stay with that Bible. Help me, Holy Ghost. The word of God has not changed. Again, you can read it in Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, Swahili, Zulu, or any other language, and the word of God remains the same. That's true for any situation. Now, I want nobody to think because I'm, I'm an equal opportunity when it comes to calling out sin. So I, I, it's true for any situation, whether it's sex outside of marriage, whether it's adultery, whether it's lying, stealing, or cheating. So when the word of God says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, that's exactly that's what it means. God says the rightful place of the husband is the head. Now, headship in God's economy does not mean dictatorship or tyrannical rule. It does not mean that we have slaves in the house that we can boss around. That's not what God had in mind. You say jump, I say high-high. That's not what God had in mind. You know, my, my grandmama used to tell me I had a bad habit when I was a little boy. 
I mean, I had a lot of bad habits. <laughs> One of the habits I had was I would just take my socks off and just throw them down. Take my clothes off and wherever I felt like dropping them, I would drop them. And she said, she said, you, you need to hang your clothes up. Right? And you need, to, you need to pick up after yourself. In other words, she was teaching me that, that she was not my slave, nor would my wife one day be my slave. So it doesn't mean dictatorship, a tyrannical rule, but it does mean men stepping up to the plate and providing Bible-based leadership to our wives and our children. God is holding us accountable in this area. And he will not accept excuses from men who didn't renounce, relinquish, or resign that responsibility. While we are to value the ideas and the opinions of our wives, basically, I want you to hear me, basically, the buck stops with us. And see, that's where that, that mess got started in the, in the Garden of Eden. Because the buck should have stopped with Adam, not Eve. The bu- God is holding us accountable. The buck stops with us, not our wives, not our children, but with us as men. So it was, Ahab was the king of Israel. The business of running the kingdom belonged to him. Furthermore, any conflicts, disputes, differences he had with a person or people in the kingdom should have been worked out between him and them. Are you listening to me? All right, let me, let me just put it in context. The issue between Ahab and Naboth should have been settled between Ahab and Naboth. That, 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 that's the way it should have been. Not Ahab, Naboth, and Jezebel. But because Ahab was wicked as well as weak, Jezebel took matters into her own hand. By doing so, she not only crippled him and rendered him ineffective as a leader, but she brought devastating consequences upon Ahab herself and their descendants. And we'll get to that later. Now, here's a footnote for my sisters in the house. And, and, and you know, and, and I'm, not a, I'm, not a, I'm not a newlywed, all right? I mean, I'm talking, you know, 30, 37 years. I'm not, I'm not a newlywed. I'm not a novice in this, in, this, in this relationship called marriage. Here's a footnote. Stand by your man. Live up to your biblical charge of being a Helpmate, a helpmate for your husband. Pray for him. Pray with him. 
Encourage him. Listen to him. But don't handle his business for him. Don't handle his business for him. Don't, don't, don't do it. I, don't, don't handle his business for him. Listen, you know, you know, why? Because when a wife handles her husband's business, she sends the same message Je- Jezebel sent to Ahab. Let me just share with some of the messages Jezebel sent to, to Ahab that day. And that wives sin when they handle their husband's business. The message, message one, I have no confidence in your leadership ability. That's the message. When she steps in there and takes charge, she says, I have no confidence in your leadership ability. Message two, I view you as weak and ineffective. Am I right about it? Preach, pastor. Message three, I don't believe you have what it takes to win. To win. Listen, even if, even like a, you know, he's the quarterback. Smart coaches understand that, that when a quarterback is struggling a little bit, he's not hurt. You call him to the sideline. And you give him some instructions. You rally around. So what? He threw an interception. He fumbled. He got sacked in the pot. You you give him some encouragement, and then you pat him on the pads, and you say, you get back out there. Because I got confidence you can do this. You can do this. I, I don't have nobody on the bench. That can do it better than you. You can do it. Message four. You are not capable of handling the tough projects. That's what she's saying. That's what Jezebel said. We got this prophet over here. You want it. But you are not capable of handling the tough projects. So it was Ahab sat idly by while his wife proceeded to take Naboth's vineyard. Her plot was simple. Here's the plot. Here's the plot. Here's the plot. It was simple but sinister. In verses 8 through 10, it reveals she wrote letters in Ahab's name. She sealed them with his seal. And she sent them to the elders and the nobles, the religious and the civic leaders who were living in the city where Naboth lived. She wrote in the letters, in the letter, these words, proclaim a fast and sit and seat Naboth with high honors among the people. She's setting them up and seek two scoundrels, in other words, two wicked men before him to bear witness against him, saying, you have blasphemed against God and the king. Now listen, now listen, let's show you how warped she was. Blaspheming against God 
was enough to get to get the job done. But she put Ahab on the same level as God. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. Although Jezebel was not a believer in the God of Israel, she knew enough about the Hebrew faith to be dangerous. She knew enough that blasphemy or cursing God was punishable by, by death. She was well aware of the Levitical law, which states in Leviticus 24, 16, and whoever blasphemes, that means curses, the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as the one who was born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. She knew that. She knew the content of Deuteronomy 17, 6 and 7, which states, whoever is deserving of death should be put to death by the testimony of two witnesses. He shall not be put to death by the testimony of one. Notice she didn't say get one scoundrel. She said get two. She was dangerous. She knew enough about his religion to use it against him. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first to, to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people. So you shall put away evil from among you. Now, so it is in verses 11 through 14. It summarizes how Jezebel's plot was carried out according to her plan, and Naboth was falsely, falsely accused, and he was stoned to death. Verse 15 says, it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that she said to Ahab, arise. In other words, get up your sorry self. <laughs> Take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. Verse 16 reveals when Ahab heard this, heard that Naboth was dead, he got up. He went down and took possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now, there are three lessons from this drama I want us to examine. Lesson one comes from Naboth, because we can learn something from all three of these characters in here, all, all the folks involved. In this, in this story, lesson one comes from Naboth. It's a lesson about standing up for what's right. In other words, in other words it's about standing on your conviction. When you have read your Bible and you know your decision is based upon God's word, stand firm upon that conviction in spite of the opposition. Your stance might not be popular, but it will be powerful. It may not please men like good preaching, but it will please God. It may, it may, watch this now, because I, I don't, I don't want to give no false illusions about, uh, about, about, about a henny-penny, kind of namby-pamby kind of religion. It may cost you something. Standing up may cost you your title. It may cost you your promotion. It might cost you your position, or in Naboth's case, it might even cost you your life. 
Yet it is better to stand with God than to cave in to men. Naboth knew the word of God in Numbers 36 and 7. So the inheritance of the children of Israel should not change hands from tribe to tribe. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance of the tribe of his father. He stood on that word, didn't he? He knew the word of God in Ezekiel 46, more 46, 18. Moreover, the prince shall not take any of your people's inheritance by evicting them from their property. In other words, he knew the king wasn't supposed to do that. He shall provide an inheritance for his own sons from his own properties so that none of my people may be scattered from his property. So it was Naboth stood. And when man took him out. Help me somebody. God took him in. 